You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined back in the studio by Billy Golenko. How you doing, Billy? Very well, very well. Excited for, it's another long weekend's coming up, so it's going to be nice. Oh, that's right. You got big plans for, uh, well, I should say today because this, this episode launches on a Wednesday, but Valentine's Day. What's a Valentine's Day wine? Oh, Valentine's Day wine. I feel like everybody that I've been reading has been on sparkling rosé. Um, I was going to say rosé champagne is the... Yeah, but I don't think we're really going to do anything tomorrow. We got our, I got our flowers over the weekend. I have a card. I'll give her. So we're not really big Valentine's Day folks. I don't know. What about you guys? Yeah, I don't know. We are having the last month and a half of pregnancy, pre-child life. So it's been a lot of nights just kind of hanging out at the house and and relaxing. Yeah, probably do the card thing. Maybe uh, maybe we'll save the wine for after the kiddos come. Yeah, it's probably safest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, nice. it wouldn't hurt you. Take a, take a dropper. Just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, get the... yeah, there's actually a ton of stuff. Not a ton. I mean, it's not like everyone in the world's studying it, but there's been several papers about how you can drink a moderate amount while you're pregnant and it's okay to sometimes some people say beneficial, just like in normal folks, but I don't know. I probably wouldn't risk it, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, don't know, I wouldn't. One other, one small note on a, a champagne side is, uh, Napa Valley Wine Academy, we always give them plugs. They sent me a bottle of champagne for passing the diploma. And oh, nice. two notes on that. One, turns out I passed with merit overall, which I didn't know, mm-hmm. which is nice. They should probably tell you that. Um, and two, it was like a, a vintage champagne. I was worried it was just going to be like a cheap, non-vintage. It was like you were a head worried. Wringing your well, hands, I hope. Yeah, not, not necessarily concerned, but I was expecting. Anyway, I mean, they, they always do a great job with everything. So I had expectations. But sometimes when people send out these celebratory, it could just be. But anyway, it was like a 2012 Henriette. I can never say that name right. Henriette, I think it is. Um, hmm. But you know, if you look on Wine Search, you're anywhere from 90 to 120. So like a $100 bottle, give or take, nice. which is really nice. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. 2012, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, decent year. A year with ebbs and flows in hypes. <laughs> yeah, depending on the producer, there's it's either the best or mediocre. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that also brings me, speaking of vintages, to our guests for today. Um, I actually got to taste one of, a wine of theirs from 2017, which is the latest release of one of their producers. So do you want to do nice. a little intro and I can talk about that wine? Yeah, we have on Vinalia today. Bring Mary, the, the co-founders of Vinalia, who our pregnancy became pre-child life over there so love it's been a lot of, kind of nights of just kind of hanging out varieties and, and they've developed and relaxing a, yeah probably uh, do the card thing retail maybe, platform um, and, and club wine yeah. club maybe we'll save the some wine really excellent wines from kiddos come producers in regions yeah, maybe that right. don't get as much <laughs> a recognition <laughs> yeah. uh, which i know is quite like nice. it won't hurt uh, you right take down a, the center for you really in terms of your interest um but you want to talk about some of the regions and actually a ton of producers but a uh, sort of, it's not like areas in the world study that are represented in the wine papers about how. Yeah. Well, well, first, a little bit more on Vinalia. I first, this is a connection of, of mine. It's a friend of a friend introduced me to Mary and just 
you know, kind of describe what they were doing, a, a wine club with, and not just a club now, they're also importing for distribution, uh, focused on you know, bringing awareness to lesser known varieties in the world, especially a lot of Eastern European varieties, which is uh, something mm-hmm. that I always try to do with friends and it's near and dear to my heart. So I got to meet Mary and it was, she knows a ton about wine. She's really interesting. Um, and I was like, you gotta, you gotta come on the podcast. And then we got to speak with her and her co-founder Bryce, who had also worked at a number of, of wine publications before. And, and I also wrote for Guildsom, which is, he probably wrote some of the materials that I studied with back in the day. Um, so they, they both know so much about wine and it's, it's really interesting to see them going and, and sourcing from a really wine educated point of view it's like they're able to identify really quality and wines that are out there but it's not just obscurity for obscurity's sake these are great wines that they think have have a market here in the u.s and that's further driven that by the fact that they met at business school they met at university of chicago booth business school so they both were like i i like wine i want to make a business and then i've done this so it's kind of cool to see them actually do it in a really logical way but with so much wine knowledge and passion yeah, and they and they oversee the rebottling uh, and labeling of, of these wines, and they really do a good job, I think, of paying homage to the producer and the place and the people behind the wine when they bring them in and try and tell the story of that wine in that region uh, for folks here in the U.S. Because and I think, as Mary talks about in the podcast, it's you know, not as simple as just bring a great wine from in a quote unquote obscure place to the U.S. and it'll automatically sell because it's high quality. You have to tell the story also, and. And presented in a way that's um, something that consumers here in the U.S. are going to gravitate towards. So I think they've done a good job at that. We talk about Lebanese wine, which we've talked about in the past on the on the podcast. She brings up Canadian wine that they're really loving right now, which is yeah. So some some regions maybe that don't get as much airtime. Yeah, I think then we we get into it in the podcast too. They underplay the complexities of getting labels over to these producers uh, all over the place and because they are bottled and, and labeled at the producer and then they're mailed over here, which mm-hmm. is again, a complexity in its own. But yeah, so the wine, so I, I was really interested and I ended up signing up for Vinalia actually on the episode as we spoke. Um, and I got my first box. They come super fast. They were, Mary was noting, you know, it doesn't come as fast to me because I'm in California based on where they are, but they still came compared to most wine orders. It came really fast. Um, I got a Hungarian white, um, which I happen to love Hungarian white wines. Um, it's a, a blend. Um, I got a Romanian wine made of Fetashka Niagara um, that I actually had this weekend. It was a 2017. That was one I was referencing earlier. Mm-hmm. I'll get back to that. Um, and then a couple wines from Chile. Um, so it's, and the, those wines from Chile are, one was a Carignan. I assume it's an older vine one. I haven't read the label that much. Um, and a Moscatel, which nice. uh, a dry Muscat style wine. Everybody loves those, but maybe that, region and expression isn't as, as easily defined. Um, so I thought that was really cool. But yeah, so this weekend, I wanted to have one before the podcast. So I had we had some friends over for Lunar New Year celebrations. And I opened this, the Fatashka, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, Niagara. Um, it's cool because Bryce mentions in the podcast that the 2017 is their, their latest release. So these wines are well aged at the winery before release. I had tons of tons of depth and complexity. Um, so basically still had some fruit, but it also had a lot of that spice, um, some forest floor notes. And basically just I, I got like a lot of coffee, too, in a good way. But the the nose just kept evolving. And that really led me to want to decant it. I tasted it first. I was like, oh, let me decant this. See how it opens up over time. Um, but a cool comparison was that our friend brought a, a Napa Valley wine. And I won't 
I won't name what it is, but it was basically just one of those brand wines, like bought fruit, cool label that mm-hmm. cost $50 uh, based yeah. on my my research. And that wine was just so simple in terms of, it wasn't even like a soulful Napa wine. It was just basically like berries and cream and basically just tasted, it really did taste really creamy, not even like spicy oak mm-hmm. um, and like berries. And just having it next to this wine was crazy because there was so much depth and complexity and and I, I was like, maybe it's because the Romanian one has been aged longer. Let me leave them both out overnight and see what happens to this Napa one when it oxidizes a bit. I'm just simulating really quick age. Um, yep. Nothing nothing happened. The fruit was just a little less bright. And that was it. It still tasted basically vanilla in a glass. Yep. Whereas the, the Romanian one actually was still standing up and, and showing different character. So I thought it was, it was just an interesting juxtaposition. My whole box from Vanali was like, about a hundred bucks total after tax, ninety four something. So this this bottle was the equivalent of twenty five bucks and half the price of this other wine, and it's just so much more interesting. And it's just the it's kind of a small microcosm of why you should explore some of these out there varieties um, rather than just sticking to a tried and true name that you have to pay more for. Nice. Yeah, we had we had a little bit of a comparison ourselves this past weekend over the Super Bowl. Um, been uh, the two wines. Bordeaux varieties. One was uh, Palmeral. Was it Chateau Gazine? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that right? Adam had brought our master of wine. Had brought to an offsite a year ago. I think about a year ago. So it was a 2012. So I opened that alongside a 2016 a Barbersville Octagon, which is mm-hmm. their Bordeaux blend. And uh, yeah, they're. It was really cool to do that comparison. Both had really great acidity, really bright fruit. Uh, the Bordeaux was, or the Bordeaux was like darker, more like dense and rich. In its fruit character versus the the octagon which was maybe just more red fruit and maybe i don't know a little bit thinner so i would actually say on the palate i was a touch disappointed i didn't look up any vintage notes for that one i'm not sure what kind of year that was maybe it was a little a cooler but i was just expecting maybe a little bit more um, dark fruit character in the octagon but but the bordeaux brought that and that was ended up actually being folks favorite but got good comments all around on both of those wines Nice. I wonder if if it's Pomerol, it's probably mostly, if not 100% Merlot. So that that might be the difference there. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was really, it was over 50%. I believe when I looked it up, I I thought, unless I'm confusing it with something else, but yeah. Cool. So. Well, nice. I'm glad to see you drinking wine when you can. I know you're going to (laughs) be a a busy dad, twins dad soon. So Twins dads. Yep, that's right. Yeah, we'll actually to... probably drink more wine after that because then my wife will be able to drink with me again and we'll, I can open bottles without feeling bad about having to <laughs> corv in it 90 times. <laughs> true, so. true. Cool. cool. Yeah, let's leave you guys with our interview. I'm here are the folks from Vanalia. Introducing you to Bryce and Mary. Enjoy. Hi, Mary and Brace. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Nice to see you, Billy. I will have given a little bit more of an intro ahead of time, but one of our my friends out here, um, two, I guess two of my friends out here in LA, had been telling me I needed to speak with their wine friend. And typically, everybody has a wine friend, and and it's always nice to chat with them. But they're like, oh no, this this girl gets into obscure varieties and really likes those things, and they really know how to kind of get me excited. So I've been like waiting to meet Mary for months now and finally got to meet her and then once i met her i was like we have to have you and your your co-founder on the podcast so we're so excited to have you guys 
Oh, thank you so much, Billy. Yeah, I, I also heard all about you as well and everything you guys are doing. And I was so excited to kind of finally meet and was a little surprised to hear that you also have a passion for obscure varietals, but you're really excited by it nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, I guess our podcast listeners probably know now, but it's because I came into wine the roundabout way. I wasn't raised and Napa is the best. You should learn about these nice wines. I, I, started by reading and I was like, oh, these weird wines sound so much cooler. I'm Hungarian. I look like I'm Slovakian. I want to learn about these wines, not necessarily California wines. So can you tell us a little bit about why we're talking about obscure varieties, what your your company is, Vinalia, and kind of what it is, and then maybe a little bit of each of your backgrounds to kind of how we got here today? Yeah, so I can oh. kick it off. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would say Vinalia is all about featuring the wines of the lesser known wine world. We, our goal is to shed a spotlight on the regions, the grapes, and a lot of the producers that are overlooked by the mainstream American wine market. Uh, there are over 10,000 grape varieties out there, and over 50% of planted vineyards are dedicated to a mere 33. So what we want to do at Vinaya is introduce American consumers to, to those remaining 9,967, I believe. <laughs> Did you say that 50% of grapes are grown in 33 vineyards around the world? Yeah. No, 50% of <laughs> vineyards are dedicated to only 33. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, was, I was like, you're about to just completely blow up my world. Are those be some was, no, but uh, yeah, g- go on. So the uh, giving people access to uh, varieties that are lesser known, lesser appreciated. Was that originally, as you both got into the wine game, your passion or did that sort of evolve the way that or in a, in a way similar or dissimilar to what Billy just talked about. So I think Mary and I each both got into the wine industry from separate avenues. Um, and so I, I've worked in the wine industry ever since I was 21 years old, based off of a WIM college internship that I found on our college job board when my summer plans fell through before my senior year. But um for the entirety of my 20s, I worked as a wine journalist and critic, writing for most of the major American wine publications. And I was on staff at Antonio Galoni's Venice. And then I was the staff writer at Guildsom, which is a major wine trade and education at, uh, publication and platform. Um, and I had the distinct privilege of getting to travel the world for six months out of the year for years and years for the entirety of my 20s. I was living in San Francisco, so Napa and Sonoma were my backyard. Rioja and Tuscany and Burgundy were beats of mine that I got to cover and visit annually. But I also got to go to a lot of the more off-the-beaten-track wine regions, places like Cyprus and Lebanon and, and Hungary and Uruguay and all for work. And there were really a few amazing things that were happening in these places. Number one is... You know, the quality to cost ratio of the wine just goes absolutely through the roof. For a small fraction of what you can pay for, you know, wine in California, you can get an equally exceptional bottle from these places where you just can't pronounce the region or the grape variety with, with, with ease. Um, and number two, um, and I think this is probably more important, is... You know, you, you feel like you're Anthony Bourdain when you're in these places. You're out on these dirt paths trying to decipher your GPS. And eventually you end up in, you know, the driveways of these wine growers whose families have been stewards of lands that they farmed for generations and champions of their local rare indigenous grape varieties or antique methods of wine production. Um, and... 
their story you know, as a journalist always became my most read articles, which was great. I did my job. My editors were happy. But when I got to flipping the script to what the readers were experiencing, they're sitting there salivating, romantically attached to this wine, ready to pull out their credit card. But unless they're going to go on to Expedia and book a ticket to Beirut and then you know hire a driver to take them to the middle of the Becca Valley, there's no way they're going to taste that old vine Lebanese Sanso that I'm writing about. Um, so, I mean, I think we were experiencing a major disconnect between a generational shift in what people were finding interesting and exciting in the wine world and what they were what was either literally in the United States or what people were able to access with a sort of fluency and ease that they needed to really find the maximum enjoyment from their wine experiences. And I know Mary had a totally different path to getting here, but luckily, you know, we, 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 we met in business school and I'll let Mary share that story. No, thanks, Bryce. Yeah, I definitely do not have the traditional wine background at all. I came to wine later in life. Uh, after undergrad, I worked as a financial services consultant for several years. Um, I eventually moved to Paris, France as my now um, husband, but at the time boyfriend, was French, didn't get a visa. So our lives kind of got upended overnight and we found ourselves booking a one-way ticket to Paris. Um, and it was a great time over there. And as cliche as it sounds, I just really fell in love with wine living in France. It was just, I had such incredible access to amazing wines. And I'm not just talking about Burgundy, Bordeaux, Champagne, even though I love those wines too. Um, it was more um, the ability for us to travel to the lesser known areas that I loved, Jura, Savoie. Um, we, we went to Portugal, lesser known parts of Italy. And I just really was just so captivated and enthralled after meeting the producers over there, talking to them. And I was like, I just want to learn everything and anything about this business. So I started to get certified. I went down the WSET track. Um, I'm now a WSET diploma student. And I just made the crazy decision, or at least my friends and family at the time thought it was crazy to just stop my life in, as a financial services consultant and decide to work in wine. So I wanted to pursue more of the business side of wine. So I went back to business school, to round out those skill sets, and very serendipitously met Bryce week one at Booth. And he told me, hey, like, why'd you come to Booth? And I was like, oh. I wrote my essay on pursuing wine entrepreneurship. And he was like, no way, me too. I was like, wow, that is pretty odd that the two people probably in this 600 person plus class ended up sitting next to each other during orientation. But that was week one. And that was just the beginning of our now of the Vinali adventure. <laughs> I want to just immediately jump into the wine. So I'm going to restrain myself for a little bit more. Um, the, the the joke that a lot of people make in the wine business, and I think you did the wine journalism thing at the right time. I wish I had known I liked wine at your age because all the wine journalists we talked to are like, I love traveling for work, but I'm never going to make a lot of money being a wine journalist or being a wine writer. Um, so you, I think you did it at the perfect time. And now you're pivoting to starting Vinalia in a way to also fulfill a mission, but also build a business. How are you, what difficulties have you found and as you've evolved, you're a young company. So are you kind of changing and how have things kind of changed in your beginning in terms of what you thought would work and then what you guys are doing now and what people are really kind of catching on or liking that you're doing? Oh, gosh. I mean, I feel like there are so many lessons learned even in our, our very young, young life as a company. Um, 
when, when we talk about pivots, there are small things that we've done in terms of really figuring out what the correct channels are. You know, we, we launched as a direct-to-consumer business, really focusing on a subscription model. And that's still something that we, we very much do and believe in. But selling wines into retail and restaurants is really now our, our big move for 2024, beginning in, in the Chicago area where I'm located. And Mary was located up until just a few months ago. Um but it's our, our home base. And, but I think unlike a lot of other young companies, this isn't to say that either is correct or, or incorrect or good or bad for a company. I think really the core mission of the company, what we've set out to do and really the, the essence of the product hasn't actually changed all that much since the very beginning. I mean, I think you know, we, we, we've shifted a little bit in language and really what. I think who our target customer might be, but at the end of the day, where I've seen a lot of companies just wildly shift and sometimes very successfully into an entirely different business model, different business products, um, ours has really remained pretty true to I think what we were trying to accomplish from from day one. Mary, correct me. Do do you agree? Totally, I completely agree with you. Yeah, our de- I definitely would say our. Our mission and our ability to deliver the lesser known wines of the wine world has not changed and will never change. It's just, yeah, the kind of the avenues in which we're able to deliver those wines um, that has evolved. And I'm sure uh, we just we're we're not we're less than a year old, so I'm sure it will continue to evolve as well. (laughs) Did you run into those the standard hurdles of trying to do anything in wine with all of the the red tape and, and the licenses needed to to import and distribute and, and all that as well so far? Totally. I mean, the good news is, I think, w- with wine businesses is, yes, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot to navigate there. But at the end of the day, there are clearly defined or semi-clearly defined laws <laughs> Um and if you have a good lawyer, they'll help you navigate that. You know, it's it's not a real wheel that startups, young businesses can really reinvent. So as long as you're getting good advice from the right people, those are parameters that you just do have to work in. And any kind of innovation that you bring to the wine industry is really going to kind of have to come through other things rather than legal innovation. But luckily, we, we have a really excellent team advising us on, on, on that front. So we're really happy about that. But you know, when you're just getting into it and finding those partners, it definitely is, is overwhelming, but certainly achievable. And the nature of the wines that you guys are bringing in from the producers who are in some of them in relatively obscure parts of the world, how easy just for the average asset is it for a normal person to call up someone in that locality and buy a wine and have it shipped even for an astronomical price over here to the States? Or is that just not even a possibility for a lot of the labels that, that you're featuring? You mean just like a, a, a traditional consumer who might visit the region? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, what's an example? Oh, like in Greece. Went, went to Greece last year, Santorini. There are several producers who don't distribute in the U.S. or import to the U.S., but they'll ship you wine. It's just going to cost you an arm and a leg, and you have to call them at 1 o'clock in the morning, our time kind of thing. Is it that sort of relationship, or is this maybe even farther away from the average consumer here in the U.S.? I think for a lot of the wines that we're dealing with, um, certainly some of the wineries, if they have programs and receive frequent tours, especially from the United States, I'm sure that they can figure out ways to ship their own wine to your doorstep. 
exactly how legal those pathways are is there. And again, like, it, and you're totally right. It costs an arm and a leg. I mean, it, it's a pain. But I think really where Vinalia comes in is our producers, they're, they're not in Tuscany. They're not in Bordeaux. They're not in places where traditional American tourists will visit wineries. Even some, they might not even recognize that country makes wine. They might not even typically even venture to visit those countries a lot of time. They might just go totally under the radar. Uh, so I th- the bigger value that we deliver, even beyond just figuring out all the logistics of bringing the wine to people's doors, which is a lot of logistics. It, it, it's a lot of puzzle pieces and trying to figure out how to get things on, on a boat, on a truck, on a train, on a plane at the right time. Um, but I think the bigger value is is one that we we go out and do the work of actually discovering them um, for the American market and really trying to find those things that people would overlook, those cellar doors that people aren't visiting, those regions and countries that American cons- uh, you know tourists don't typically visit. Uh, and so I think that's really more of the legwork that we we do. Um, I think just give one example there. Americans totally visit Croatia. Obviously, that big hot place right now. Mary and I are gearing up to do sourcing there in a couple of weeks from now. And if I were to begin to describe to you the difficulties of accessing some of those vineyards and coming up with an itinerary for someone who just really loves wine and visiting Croatia, it's a total pain. Um, But we're really excited. We're going to be spending a lot, a lot of time in the car together. Um, But it's hard for me to envision that a lot of the wineries that we're visiting, American tours would just stumble upon in their own right. So I have two points on what you've been saying. One I am one of those American tourists. <laughs> we have a wedding in Montenegro in April. And I was telling oh. Mary that we're going to be doing a week driving up Croatia. And I don't even know where to start. And I, I work in the wine industry about like how to find some of these places. So I'm going to be looking to you guys for, for tips when you get back. Please, um, we'll have ample experience <laughs> at that point. <laughs> nice. Yeah, just, just send me a live feed. Of, yes, no. Um, and then, but I, I think you guys... You're downplaying it a little bit, a little bit of modesty. A buddy of mine lived in Budapest for a while, at least half the year. And I had I'd visited him. We love the wines. Like, these wines are amazing. How do we bring these to the U.S.? So we, we had spent six months just kicking around the ways to bring wine in. And once he, like, I was like, I think it's harder than you think. And he, now I'll get him. I have a friend in Portugal. We'll just move him here. It'll come right over. Um, and after thinking about it for a while, we both just kind of gave up. So I think... Well, you guys are, you make it sound a little easier than it is, but even just moving it around and bringing it here, you need a special set of people. So I think that's impressive that you guys are, are able to bring them um, and set up that infrastructure. Um, yeah. Can we, I, I don't want to wait too much longer to talk about the wine. So can we talk about some maybe that you have on your website now, a couple of the regions that you are, are really into right now, and then what's maybe on, on the horizon? Um because I, and then we can we can always mix in other conversations. Yeah, too. yeah. And, for, and first, tell us tell us how Vinalia works in terms of if I'm someone who is in, is starting to get excited about these oh, yeah. regions <laughs> and producers subscription. Talk about that and, and the different collections you have on the site. For sure, if you are if you are new to Vinalia, you're welcome. We encourage you to explore a diverse portfolio of wines. We do have a bi monthly subscription available in which. Uh, you would receive four bottles of wine every other month, four new bottles and different bottles. And I would say if, oh, if you are curious to try different wines, especially wines that are almost impossible to access here in the U.S., 
our subscription is really the best way to go. It's $98 shipping included. So it's less than 25 bucks a bottle. Um, we think it's a phenomenal deal, almost a steal. <laughs> um, but it's really just an amazing way to try those obscure grapes. And not only that, to learn so much about the diverse world of wine around us. What we do at Benaya is, first and foremost, we want to make sure we deliver customers amazing bottles of wine. That goes without saying. But it's also really important to us to kind of share the stories behind the bottle. We really want to empower consumers so that they're not so intimidated when they go into a wine store and they see that kind of other reds, other white section. We want them to try our Susum in yellow. And when they go into a wine shop and they see that grape, they're going to be so excited. They're going to be like, oh, I know what that grape is. It's from Puglia. It's an, it's an indigenous varietal from over there. And that's so much what we're about. So if you subscribe to us, you can go on our website. You can read all these stories about the grapes themselves, the producers, the regions, um, nerds here at Finalia. So we love to get into the details. But so the subscription is a great way to try everything. But if, you, if you're not into that as well, that's totally fine. We have a lot of curated collections if you're just looking to kind of dip your toe into the world of Vinalia. So say if you just went on a vacation to, uh, let's say, Slovenia, we have a Balkan Peninsula box in which we showcase wines from, from that area. We also have an all-red adventure if you're looking to try, if you know you're a diehard red person, but looking to try, you're, you're a little tired of the Napa cab, you know, the Argentinian Malbec, we have a lot of other things that are in similar profiles and veins, but are definitely new that you haven't tried before. So many options. I mean, diversity in our collection is just everything we're about. And so there's really no shortage of adventures you could have with Vinalia. And I think you, you asked us about what our f wines that we're excited about. And I there's, it's a challenge. I mean, there, I, I feel like there are children. Huh? And so I, picking favorites is hard, but I, I do have them. And I think a lot of parents do too. Um, but I think some that I'm really excited about, and Billy, you, you mentioned you're Hungarian and my family is partly too. Um, and so I knew getting Hungarian wine into our portfolio was going to be very important to me from the very beginning. I also just got a personal note. I mean, one of my favorite categories of wine is, is dessert wine, which we do not sell at the moment, but maybe one day down the line. But Tokai is very dear, dear to my heart. As a journalist, I got to visit Tokai, which was an unbelievable experience. Um, and... I think most people aren't aware that Hungary makes wine. If they do, the only thing that they'll know is Tokai, which is, is great. It's, it's one of the greatest wines in the entire world. But there's so much to explore in Hungary, even just outside of, of Tokai and the grape that's used to make it, which is ferment, dry ferment, which is also excellent. Um, so I'm really excited about the Hungarian wines that we've brought into our portfolio. We have three from a producer called Tote Ferenc, which is one of the I think most excellent producers in the Eger region of Hungary, which is really smack dab between in the middle between Tokai and Budapest. Um, and the grape that the style of wine that they're most famous for making there is um, a style called Egri Bikaver, which Bikaver translates to bull's blood. And I mean, the way that the story goes with bull's blood is, I mean, hardly likely to be true but it's a really really excellent legend like the legend of Bikaver goes that in, in 1552 um 
you, the town of Agar was really right on the border between Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. And they were constantly defending itself, each other, defending themselves. Um, they were constantly getting into different skirmishes. And in 1552, um, the townspeople in Agar were quite convinced that um, the Ottoman army was coming and they were going to come and take over their castle. And this was kind of the end. So what did the guy who was captaining their army do? He gives their soldiers a whole bunch of wine just to get them in the fighting spirit or prepare for their own end of days. Um, So anyways, they all get trashed on the local wine. Um, And the next day when the Ottoman army comes, they just see all of these Hungarian soldiers and their beards are just like ripping in this viscous red wine and it's covering their armor. And uh, the Ottomans coming from, you know, a, a... Islamic background where they're not allowed to drink alcohol or less familiar with wine. And they really had convinced themselves that these soldiers had just drunk the local blood of their bulls um, to give them virility and prepare them for battle. And there's like, these people are insane. Um, and so they actually retreat and the townspeople in Agar get to save their castle for one more day. They don't get to for eternity, but, uh, and that's the story of where, where bull's blood comes from. And the bull's blood that we have, our, our Agripica Vera from Tote Ferenc is one of my absolute favorites. I mean, it's one of the, you know, premier red wine styles in all of Hungary. It's typically based on Kek Frankos, which is the same grape as Blau Frankish. Um, a really, really excellent Eastern European grape variety. Um, but it's blended with a whole bunch of other different stuff. And the story, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of gaps there. We do know that in that time in the 16th century that there was actually a lot more white wine plant, white grapes planted in the agar region than red, and red is a more recent arrival. So the story it doesn't entirely hold up. But what you do have today is you still do actually have a very potent, really powerful red wine. So it reminds me a little bit of Chateau Neuf de Pop or different kind of Cote de Rhone wines. Um, but that that's a personal favorite of mine that's been keeping me warm this winter. Yeah, I I love that story. I mean, every I've I've heard every iteration of of they drank it so that they could fight longer and all that. But it is one of my favorites too. And what's cool to me about that wine, at least that style, I don't know that the one you've had. Is Blau Frankish or Kek Franco Kek Frankosh in general has that acidic backbone a little bit too. So it is rich, but it also is it's so well balanced and it also it, it's it's great. I, I I personally I've had a limited amount compared to you probably for sure. But like some Chateauneufs can get so ripe and over and unbalanced. You know, they need to add all those varieties in to make it balanced, whereas these are a little bit more straightforward and, and the Blau Frankish or Kek Frankosh um really shines. Absolutely. Um, totally keeps it in, it all in check and in balance, which is great. And it means the same thing, right? Blau Frankish just means blue, blue Frankish. And then Kek Frankish just means the same thing. I'm pretty exactly. sure. Exactly. We actually, we have another one uh, from Slovenia, which is another Blau Frankish blend, but there they call it Modra Frankina. I'm from, we have a winery called Merov in, in Eastern Slovenia. So most Slovenian wine that you see in the United States comes from Western Slovenia, right on the Italian border. Uh, this one is right actually on the Hungarian border. Um, and that's another another wonderful wine that we really, really love. That winery, Merov, they they cellar their wine until they deem it ready to release. So we, we sell the current release and it's 2017. You know, it's a red wine that already has seven years of age on it before, before being released to the public. Nice. What are some other regions that you guys have on the site right now in general? Just also because I know you guys have some from the Friuli Slovenia border, which is another another favorite of ours or mine and my fiance's, not Brady's. But Brady should like them as well. Um, 
yeah, from from there we have a Rebola Jala and a Friulano, um, and we're we call them baby orange wines because they they're not orange, but they do dip their toe toes into kind of the uh, extended skin contact maceration fermentation. If you for those lovers of the natural wine movement and orange wine, I think they're they're really great. If you're looking to experiment with the natural wine movement and orange wine, um, they're also really great because they're not. I would say strong in kind of that tannin feel that you do get with, I would say, full fledged orange wines, but they're really phenomenal. It's it's a mother son duo over there, and they've they they our, our producers are called Ronco de la Betul, and they produce really incredible wines. Rabola Jala and Friulato are indigenous to the area, and uh, oh yeah, I remember ta- we we actually talked about those grapes. When we first met Billy, you really loved them. So those are phenomenal. I also would say one of my favorites producers and regions that I'm loving is our is actually the Niagara Peninsula up in Canada. We have a dry Riesling and a Cabernet Franc from our producers Cave Spring. And truly, I mean, I've just been kind of crushing on those wines all winter long. They're so delicious. And I love introducing people to those wines because when friends and family say Canada, they make wine. What? They're so shocked. And truly, the quality is excellent. Bryce and I spent a weekend up there. And honestly, the amount of incredible tastings we had, just unbelievable. There are so many vineyards producing so many excellent wines. And more than that, they've invested so much in wine tourism. It's just right over the border. And for people living in uh, even like Chicago, it would be a great weekend vacation. Like instead of going to Napa, I highly recommend going to Niagara. It's so cute, so lovely, great food. Bryce introduced me to butter tarts, which I definitely don't think I needed that in my life because they're in a word savage, but they were amazing and delicious also for this time of year. That's awesome. Yeah. I was just, uh, I was looking at the Niagara wine as well. I'm, I'm caught up when I'm looking at the website in some of the just design choices, both of the bottles and of your site itself. It seems like someone has a background or you worked with an agency or something because the <laughs> the design is is excellent. I like the way that you the information that you give seems really helpful, especially with the pronunciation of some of these varieties people might not be familiar with. Can you tell us about maybe like the label design and sort of how you package these wines and the partnerships and how you try and obviously put your own spin on these labels that you've picked out, but also pay homage to the producers that you're working with, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fine balance to to strike. And I think one thing that was really important for us, you know, we, we see a lot of wine clubs in the United States where all the wines are just completely, it's opaque to where they're coming from. I mean, even not just wine clubs. I mean, there's celebrity labels that you'll find out in retail. And it's really, really difficult for people to know where their wine is coming from. You know, we live in an age where people are certainly very eager to know where their food is coming from. And you know, we're, we're starting to see with beverage that it, it's really no different there either. Um, and again, at the core value of Vinalia is sharing these stories of these places that are lesser known. Um, and so championing the stories of our, you know, supplier partners, you know, the wineries that we we work with. Um, I mean, that that's really at the heart of what we do. And so something that we do need to be reflected on the label. At the same time, a lot of the labels that the, the wineries have in 
in their home country, they're designed for a different taste for maybe a, a consumer that's of an older generation or one that's, you know, they're just different aesthetics that are uh, that sell in their local markets than what sells in the United States market. So we really want to guide them into an aesthetic that really works um, to reach the customers that we want to in the United States. We work with a really talented uh, graphic designer. And as you'll see, our entire brand is presented as collaborations between us, Vinalia, and the winery. So it's completely transparent to where the wines are coming from, really trying to share their stories, share photography from the local regions, um, and having, but at the same time, having an overarching brand aesthetic for Vinalia that kind of marries those two kind of goals. And I would just add on that too. So in all of our labels, we always feature a a human, a person. And that is a strategic choice of ours because we strongly believe that the wine that's in your glass, it's made by humans. It's made by the strategic choices that people are making in the vineyard, in the winery. It's truly an art and a craft. And a lot of people kind of like the, oh, Let's just let the juice be juice, no touching. But we fully believe that it's those choices by the humans that really make what you're tasting and what you're experiencing. And so we are all about celebrating those those people that are crafting these amazing wines. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I like the I'm looking through sort of some of the differences and e- even some differences in the bottle type and the bottle shape. I'm even like I'm not actually sure what it's called, but. Um, embossment or stamping on the bottle. What's it called? Where where you have the raised raised text on certain bottles? Um, Actually, I don't know the specific term. Yeah, the glass. It's, I always like that. Chateauneuf de Pop. Like all the wines are are that way, right? Exactly. In a lot of regions, some of it's legally mandated. So, I mean, the yeah. the Agri Bicaver that I was talking about earlier. There's a special Agri Bicaver bottle that producers hmm. who uh, of Agri Bicaver. I mean, either they, they're either obligated to use it or the only ones who are allowed to use it. I'm not sure which one it is. Um, it depends on the region with, with those sorts of things. But um, but yeah, so I mean, it's a bottle shape that I'd never seen before. It's a little kind of square and a little bit more squat than other bottles, but it's, it's really mm-hmm. fun. And when our, our winery partners have those special extra touches or something that we, we always are really excited about. That's awesome. So you're receiving bottled wine with their with the winery's glass um, you're not receiving juice and then bo- doing any bottling operations at all here in the states no uh, yeah okay. i mean we, we bring in the wines in the united states i mean all the bottling is done in europe but all the labeling is done there it's as done well. here. Sure. yeah so oh, okay. um, oh i see united okay. states in their finished form do you Very need cool. to send them the the labels i guess the strips and and all the import stuff comes a little bit later but do you have to send you make them here and then send them there, knowing that some of these places might not have printing facilities. So as of right now, we don't. So, I mean, they, they all, I mean, they don't have printing on, on site at the wineries, but they work with printers for their own labels. Um, so we, we, we work with them um, to figure out what the, their precise bottle dimensions are, and then you know, create labels to fit the standards of their own printers. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Line. And so what part, you know, looking through the different options, obviously there's the collections and subscription, but also you can just buy bottles a la carte um, totally. out of the shop, it looks like. Um, have you been surprised at where new fans of Vinali have come and spent their time and, and resources in terms of what they're purchasing? Are they purchasing single bottles, a la carte, subscription, and how have those parts of the business grown? 
Yeah, I would say so to date, we've really got a lot of our customers doing in-person tastings, just like the mm. way tra- traditional wine brands do it. Um, and because so much of Evanahi's storytelling aspect, Bryce and I love getting in front of a group and kind of sharing those. I mean, the every beak of your story is just one, but basically all of our bottles have really interesting stories that we can share. And because our portfolio is diverse, there are many different types of theme tastings that we're able to do and put on. Um, I already mentioned the Balkans tasting. We do the Backroads of Italy. Um, they're truly endless, a, a woman in wine. And we've just been able to find a lot of success at these events. Um, the wine really speaks for itself, but the storytelling aspect really resonates with consumers because a lot of consumers, you know, we may... For example, want to know how long a wine has been aged on lees. The general consumer doesn't. Um, but what resonates with them is someone's beard soaked in what looks like blood. And they're like, oh, that's like that story. Oh, that's that wine. Oh, I loved that wine. And it's and we've been really shocked how much people just are falling in love with the stories behind the bottle. So that's definitely been one surprise. Um, in terms of the actual wines that they're buying, it's it is, it's all over, but one thing that we've noticed, it doesn't matter the demographic, people are loving floral white wines, and it's pretty overwhelming that like all of our tasting, I would say the floral white in whatever we're pouring, people, it's, it's normally the crowd pleaser. And it's, it, it is interesting because, and, and it's not just some people think, oh, it's more women who would like that. Not at all. It is truly across the board. People love that. I don't know if that's a shift in drinking. People are a little tired of the high alcohol, tannic, very heavy wines, but people are, really gravitate to the floral whites in our collection. And, and Bryce and I sometimes talk, we're like, should we add some more floral whites to our portfolio? We already have so many, yet this is what this is what our consumers really like. Um, there, you know, there's no shortage of, of those. Uh, but yeah, that, that's been surprising. I don't know, Bryce, what you think. <laughs> I could personally die on a desert island with exclusively dry muscat and be a very happy camper. Uh, (laughs) I didn't realize that so many other people felt the same way. Uh, And I mean, I think it to give a little bit of further context there. I mean, the the family of muscat grapes and the family of Malvasia grapes, I mean, is, is a really storied and diverse and ancient one that extends all across the Mediterranean basin. So there is a massive tradition of kind of these floral white grape varieties that you see in so many of the oldest wine growing regions of the world, whether that is um, Greece or Southern Italy or the Levant, Cyprus. Um, in extending them, you have Muscatel Sherries and Muscatel wines in Portugal. So really all around um, in North Africa. And, they have amazing stories and they just taste absolutely delicious. Um, and there's so many of them and there's so many that I would love to bring in. I, I, I didn't realize that there was such a thirst for many different types of floral whites, but as long as people keep wanting them, we'll, we'll keep bringing them. The thing I love most about those wines in particular and Brady and the podcast listeners will, will be tired of me talking about the story of wine by, by Hugh Johnson. Um, but I've been listening to it for a few years now. And he emphasizes both both of those grapes. And it's like, those are two of the grapes that the name has been only just slightly changed over this period of time. They've been like so famous and in the vernacular. It's not like they're evolving and everybody wants to emulate what that original style was like. And they they bring it and try to grow it like that. It's it's so cool how some of those styles are 
I like to think I'm it still tastes something like it might have back then. Probably not with all the things that were added or the way it was made, but still I just love the idea that the name um if I went back two thousand years may resonate with someone. Um, Absolutely. You may know what I'm talking about. So cool. I I wanted to ask something that I've always considered if I well not considered. My my biggest issue when we have really cool small producers, I want to go and sell them somewhere. Unless you're doing a D to C, I feel like retailers always want volume. And if it sells well, then they want you to be able to replace it. How are you walking that line as you move into the retail side of bringing these cool wines and having a Vinalia name and consistency, but maybe not the exact wines over and over? It's an excellent question. And I think a lot of that story is still yet to be told because you know, we're just entering wholesale. So exactly what people will expect and demand is... On, on the horizon line for us and things that we're trying to figure out in, in the initial conversations that we're having. That said, I think, I mean, one thing that I, I would probably want to clear is a, a number of our producers are, are quite small and that's totally true. And we will only be able to sell them direct to consumer. And those aren't the ones that we're going to put into wholesale channels at the same time, we, we, we do have a number of producers that we work with that are on the medium or medium plus size, too. They made absolutely exceptional wine with the same sort of care and meticulous ethos, uh, the attention to detail of the small producers. I mean, I've had I mean, so much wine in my career, and I've had absolutely terrible wines from small producers and absolutely exceptional wines from giant producers. So I, I would probably want to fight against the misconception that the size of a winery necessarily dictates quality. Um, but in terms of the logistical question, you know, I think one of the beauties of, of having kind of a direct-to-consumer subscription model is that uh, we, we can bring in a lot of wine and it, it's whoever gets it first. And if we're really passionate about a wine that we can only get a half palate of, and it's really important for us to tell that story of that wine will absolutely bring it into the United States and that the customers who are most care about it, the market will dictate you know who's able to get there first um but there's there's no shortage of wine that we have there there's available volumes of that you're not really seeing in american retail right now but we're really excited to bring it there are you finding anybody that you're working with i've only kind of read about these and experienced a few in person is they're they're smaller they're bottling some of their own stuff under their own name maybe to sell locally or in their kind of local market but then they're selling the rest of their fruit or juice to to co-ops just to kind of get things by because they're like, I don't know how to even sell this much wine. Do you have anybody who is kind of like that where they could, in theory, sell more of their own wine if they wanted to, they just can't actually move it if they created it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think with our producers... I don't know of any of them selling any of their grapes to cooperatives. We've looked at cooperatives as well and talked to them. There's a, Cooperatives, I think, are one of the most kind of untapped resources in the wine world. And there's a lot of misnomers out there about what cooperative wine is. Uh, a lot of cooperatives kind of were, were born in really the interwar, the post-war era, and we're seeing the modern wine industry coalesce. And you have all these people who are coming from agrarian societies that have inherited these small plots of grapes but don't have the equipment or the ability to commercialize them on their own. Um, and over time, I think over the last few decades especially, you've seen in so many different parts of the wine world, take champagne, for example, you see this grower champagne movement. You're seeing all these producers who had been selling their grapes to cooperatives for so many years, exceptional fruit, realizing, okay, now they have family members who want to dedicate the time and the resources to create their own winery around, around their own land. Um, 
a lot of families still don't haven't had that privilege yet. Um, and a lot of it, especially in a lot of lesser known regions and where we haven't worked with any cooperatives yet, it's certainly something that we would we would welcome. The other kind of tricky part with cooperatives, too, in um, Eastern Europe, a lot of them view the co-op model as akin to the collectivism that they experienced behind the Iron Curtain. So they actually don't in a lot of regions where you would expect them to have cooperatives because you see them in a lot of of lesser known regions in France and Spain and Italy, some of them making phenomenal wine, some of which some other cooperatives have a little bit more work to do on that front. Um, but a lot of that, you you will see these producers banding together in regions that don't have a lot of brand recognition. Um, you don't actually have that in Eastern Europe. So you have a lot of really, really large, massive wineries. And then over the last few decades, you've seen a rise of individual independent wineries that can be of any size. Um, a lot of them are small. I think a lot of really the top ones right now are really in the medium size. I think that's really the, the sweet spot in Eastern Europe, but they don't have co-ops. So it's really interesting. Um, I think kind of one example in our portfolio there right now is um, the producer Divino in Romania, which they're they're arguably the most prestigious producer in Romania. If you, you're studying winemaking at Bucharest, the wines from Ro, uh, from Divino, their Feteasca Neagra and their Feteasca Alba are used as the textbook examples of what the nature indigenous grape varieties of Romania should taste like. Um, they were only, Mary, correct me, I, I know you've, you've shared this story in public more often than I have. They were one of the first two or three privatized wineries in Romania after its, its separation from the Soviet Union. Do you remember the exact yeah. number? They were number three when they were founded in the late 90s. Yeah. So, I mean, really just even having independent wineries in so many of these countries is is still actually a really recent innovation. That's actually my least favorite part about communism. Not not everybody, you know, we can get into the whole politics is that they ended up forcing people to make crappy wine and ruin so totally. many so many amazing historical vineyards. Yeah, it's crazy. If you, I mean, speaking of just back to Hungary, and this is not a producer that we work with, but that I absolutely adore, Ishvan Sepsi in Tokai, you know, one of kind of the fathers of the modern Tokai industry. But he'll recall in the 1950s when his family seller having Soviet soldiers walk into their family home with Tommy guns demanding that they relinquish their barrels to the state monopoly. So it's just, it's really crazy stuff. So many of these these wine growers are, are still alive today at what they've, they've lived through. And really the kind of massive, massive shifts they've seen in the structure of their own local wine industries. Yeah, even the demand for, they change their farming practices to have higher yields, but they're like, this is going to make worse wine. And it's just, it's it's horrible. But anyway. Well, and one of the biggest <laughs> victims was the grapes themselves, because a lot of indigenous grapes that are really, really mm-hmm. interesting, the ones that we love to work with, they were uprooted during those time periods in favor of grapes that were higher yielding. And then that's not just the Soviet Union. If you go to Spain, um, during the Franco era, that was a mandate too. And even in France, in the post after the phylloxera crisis that completely upended the entire European vinescape um, in the mid to late 19th century, a, a lot of the solution for a lot of the wineries that were trying to replenish their stocks after was just to plant higher yielding grape varieties in the, around the turn of the century. And so a lot of of the diversity of the wine world was either lost or nearly lost. And a lot of the producers that we work with today are, are, are super passionate about preserving the biodiversity of the wine world and resuscitating a lot of their indigenous grape varieties from, from risk of extinction. I see. As we 
get to the end here, I want to do just a quick flash round. Uh, one, one question, since we've talked about so much obscure varieties and obscure regions, and rightfully so, but what are, like, just for you guys in your wine journey or right now, more common regions and wines that you drink the most of, if any, these days? And you, well, you can say so, Burgundy. But. Outside Vinalia, so going back to more towards the the, the common... I mean, I, I, I also do love classic wines, too, and I drink a lot of them. I think Rioja is is one that's really, really special to me. And I'm, like, happy and I'm not happy that I've seen the resurgence and attention that's had in the last decade. I, I know when I initially started buying Lopez Heredia, which is one of the most iconic producers in Rioja, one of my, my absolute favorites, um, it, it was a complete utter steal for the wine. And now they're charging what they really deservedly should be making, but it makes it a little bit harder for me to just go buy on my own. But I, I do love it dearly. And Rioja, I think, is one that I, I'm glad that people have started to discover because it, it's, it's such a special place. Yeah, I think that the Tondonia, at least in my, might be because I moved to California, but I was in New York before. It doubled in price in the past six years. Like to your yeah. point, it's still undervalued. But before I was like, ah, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> it's yeah. like, the, it's still the password to one of my, a couple of my accounts, just like one of the vintages I used to be able to get for like 30 bucks. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, and they're like Rosado, which like when they were initially selling it before the big rosé wave in the United States, like they would sell it for $15 a bottle. And now you can see it on the secondary market for easily 200. Um, it's so hard to get your hands on, but it's really tasty if you do. I would say I'm a little biased because half my family now is French, but the classic French regions, I, I love Burgundy. I love Cote d'Or wines, particularly Volnay. I will never get tired of drinking Volnay. But as Bryce knows very well, my my true one love is champagne. <laughs> and I will always be down for a nice glass of champagne. I currently love the Pierre Peters, but I also love a lot of the grower champagne that's happening right now. Um, my favorites are Blanc de Blancs, but there's just, yeah, there's never enough champagne in my life. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, Bryce, you have to, what's uh, just a quick note on, you said dessert wines were some of your favorite and sweet wines. Um, ah. What What is, uh, throw a couple that we should explore, or listeners should explore out there. Ooh, gosh, there's so, so many. Um... Pasito di Pantelleria, um, which comes from, it, it, it is um, a Muscat variety. It's Muscat of Alexandria, but there they call it Sabibo, which is an even more fun name. Um, it's a Sicilian island, but it's actually closer to Tunisia than it is to mainland Sicily. And they make a, a dried grape wine there that is absolutely phenomenal. Another one that I really love is, it's the oldest known named wine that's still in production today. Um, Commanderia from Cyprus. It's also a dried grape wine. Uh, they make from two grapes there called Mavro and Xenisteri. Um, absolutely phenomenal. Really, really luscious, intense, long, um, and total steals. Um, there's, I think there's only a couple that you can find in the United States market right now. The one that you see most often is Commanderia St. John, um, which comes from a larger winery, but they do a really good job. Um, and you, it's bottles of it pop up most often around Greek Easter, because I guess it, it, there are communities that really look to, to find Commanderia in the United States around that time. Another really great example of Commanderia is from a, a winery called Chakas, which is pioneering a more contemporary style of, of Commanderia that's a little bit lighter on its feet, a little bit uh, more heavy on white grapes rather than red grapes because it's a blend of the two. Um, 
but really, really lovely, lovely wines all, all around there. So the, those are two. Casita di Pantelleria and Commanderia are two lesser-known dessert wines that I, I highly, highly recommend. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate it. This is unlike anything I think that we've featured on the podcast before, just in terms of how focused you guys are on these types of varieties. Like Billy said, we talk about obscure regions often, but I really like to see the focus and the intentionality that you guys are putting towards it. It's our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. And Billy, when you're when you're gearing up for Croatia, shoot us a note and we'll send you some of our our, our soon to be had experiences there. Yeah, yeah, Bryce. I think we're just gonna have to just virtually hang out sometime, or all three of us. We'll have Mary over and just put you on a screen because yeah, I love these conversations offline. I'll have to pick your brain about having to find how to find the equivalent of three petonios tokai because that was my favorite number of petonios, and it's not labeled anymore. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, like Bryce said thank you. I don't know why I hadn't before, but while we've been on the call, I signed up for the club. So I'm really excited to start receiving you guys' wines. And thanks again for joining. Oh, amazing. We're excited to get some stuff your way. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having us. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed that interview with Bryce and Mary. Um, There is so much I enjoyed in that conversation including the, the bull's blood story. I love that story. Um, I hope everybody got a kick out of that too. And and since we've actually recorded this, the interview, um, I've heard about Commanderia, which is this, that old, one of the oldest lines that Bryce mentioned as well. Um, so super cool to learn about all these things. I hope you guys learned a bit and definitely check them out at vinaliawine.com. Um, and then also you can also see them at Vinalia Wine is their handle, their Instagram handle, at Benalia Wine. So check them out, and we'll be back with another episode next week. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.